0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh. so, um, yeah, oh, so, um, yeah, shit's yeah. real, ridiculous, real, 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 So um, oh. So, um... yeah um... Oh. So um. Yeah. So, um, Did uh, I just go
1: so, too far? Um, Maybe a little yeah, bit. Uh, so um. Yeah. So um. Yeah. Oh. Poetry night rings through.
0: Listen, this is a time when I introduce our feature, but this is a sort of a special occasion, as Robert said. We do have company. And I kind of want to give a little bit of a different introduction. Uh, So a couple years ago, we lost someone that was very important to us, a gentleman named Ken Warfel. Ken was, um, anybody that knew him knows that he was just a fantastic human being, just a fantastic person. Um, And what a loss for everybody uh, that he's no longer with us. He came to our reading, sort of out of nowhere. My friend Ben said, "Hey, I know this guy Ken who should come to your reading. Ken, you, you should you should meet this guy." And they dried, and there was like this old guy, like this old guy, like even older than Malcolm. just and uh, the guy got up on stage, and he was just so kind. I remember before him getting on stage, he was just so kind and quiet and soft spoken. And he got on stage, and he sort of took a breath. And he became, when he read this poem, a little bit of a different person. Yeah, I I could see, I could see like a younger man inside him. I could see that passion that was there, that had always been there and always would be there. I could see that in his words, hear it. Um, what, what a treat that we got to, got to know him. I'm sure anyone here would, who's met him would, would agree. Uh, and when he died, I should probably say past or some other euphemism. When he died, we decided that in whatever small way that we could, we needed to acknowledge that he had been with us, that we had known him. And so we created the Ken Warfell Fellowship. And the Kin Warfell Fellowship, if you go to our website, our hacked website, I, I double-checked the page just in case I didn't want that one to be corrupted uh the Ken Warfel fellowship has been established to recognize and reward those individuals who have made significant contributions to their poetry community through both the performance of of poetry and through the education of poetry and so we had this idea we're going to do this and then we went and talked to like real t- people who were like you know like professors people actually make money with poetry and stuff and we said listen we're going to make this contest. We need someone impartial to judge it. Um, because you know, we're all going to pick, you know, ourselves otherwise. Right. I mean, that's just like, I'm the Ken fellow. So we got, uh, uh, Oliver de la paz, uh, Lee Yash, uh, Boris Schleinkhofer, uh, uh, forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm missing two people. We got, uh, Ben Schultz, owner of Mallards, family friend, the guy who introduced me to Ken, a family friend of the Warfells, and we also got uh, Annie McBride all together one room, and we gave them all the manuscripts and the resumes that we had received, and we said, "Here, pick somebody. You know, they've got to, they've, they have to have done service, they have to have done good work, and they got to be good at it." go for it. And from the get-go a few people were ahead of the pack. Some people were discarded because they'd sat on the board of Poetry Night. That was unfortunate. Some people uh, stepped forward uh, were were, were recognized immediately because of the quality of their work uh, and the quality of their works. And, And we sat there, Anna Wolf and I, with bated breath, as they talked about people that we knew, people that had slept on our couches, people that had come to our reading, people that we had never met before, whose lives we'd be able to just go, you. And after three weeks, I believe, of deliberation, they gave us a call, and they said, Mark Anderson of Spokane, Washington, will be the Ken Warfell Fellow. Couldn't have been happier. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome the 2012 Ken Warfell Fellow, Mark Anderson, to our stage.
1: Thank you for the the introduction, Robert. It's great to be here. Tonight, I, uh, in order to honor my being named the Ken Warfell Fellow last year, I would like to share with you one of Ken's poems before I start in on my own. This is titled Breakfast. I love you, but don't you believe it? My heart is not a golden bell that swings and rings your name. My heart pumps blood, you know that. Why pepper me with the seasoned question, how? I would not dare be that obscene. The alarm of silence is a lasting bell. Unlike time, it cannot be seen. Its ring needs no machine. The tick of a clock never made a cock get up and crow. But should you think this habit will wear... And feel a soundless night unfair. Come to the window. I will create that big yellow yolk for you each morning. To lick your plate. Today, tomorrow. Today, tomorrow. I got all my poetry materials laid out here for me. Okay, now for my own poems. <laughs> this is called The Dracula in My Closet. Every day, I have to spend at least an hour in a coffee shop or making out. If I fail to complete this requirement, I transform into what I call the beluga whale of despair. I am to coffee as Dracula is to blood. I am to coffee shops as vampires are to all-girl prep schools in the wilderness of Transylvania. (laughs) I am to kissing as PETA is to vampirism. Okay, I called PETA up and asked for their statement on on the undead, but the customer service agent just sort of hung up on me. I also tried to call up kissing, but it ends up She didn't have a number because concepts are not people, no matter how much we idealize them. Whenever I get too close to that concept, the beluga whale shakes my spine and I wince, hoping I don't blurt out to her about how bad I got when it ended last time. When I get depressed, I am to my bed as a narcissist is to the stage. And I am to my head as a prisoner is to his cage, a tide receding so far into the background that my friends ask me where I have gone while I have been standing face to face with them, which is why I am to coffee shops as monks are to temples. And I am to crowded poetry readings as my friend's grandmother is to church. I would go every day if I could. I never tire of the confession. But I come protected. I wear my shirt that reads emotionally unavailable. Every shirt I own says that. It is not actually the shirt. It is how I act within the shirt. I am to love as a vampire is to the sun. If I was a vampire... I'd look mighty fine strutting into the Dracula cafe all-superstar, alight with the mercurial fire of confidence in my skinny jeans and beret. Nobody would even judge me for ordering my triple-shot upside-down iced cappuccino with virgin blood. The barista would notice my hands and say, Count, you really should take better care of yourself. Whatever grudges you are holding on to, let them go. I'd laugh it off. Stagger home as dawn nearly blistered open the horizon. Close the lid of my coffin. Clutch it tightly to keep myself from throwing it open and running out into the light. All day, instead of sleeping, I'd picture that radiant yellow disc and shiver. As if I even knew what I had lost.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So I'm doing something a bit different tonight than my uh, previous features here. I feel like my last feature here was my most whimsical feature. And today, I've been working on a manuscript that I finished in late November. And... um and so i'm going to be performing a lot of shorter poems that are in that collection and a lot of them are also in this chapbook edgy heartfelt poems of true conviction um which until i uh, i have a formally um formally published manuscript i have devoted myself to only putting out chapbooks that are zine like and awesome like that So this poem is called Linguistic Anthropology. Two wolf dogs fight in the white snow of Siberia. People watch, huddled by burn barrels. For hundreds of generations, Inuit hunters have have practiced special breathing techniques to survive their frigid winter months. To hunt caribou, they don polar bear skins and crawl near the herd inhaling and exhaling until a single herd member approaches. The hunter springs up and stabs the caribou with a curved knife under its shoulder blade. Overcome by shock, the caribou lets the hunter safely walk it home, where it is slaughtered and eaten. Linguistic anthropologists suggest that we can measure what a people attach importance to by observing where their language is specialized. I wonder if the Inuit have a word for a caribou's will-less trance, or if they have omitted this from their tongue, eager to believe that such a thing cannot happen to people. The French language contains an expression, j'amais vu, for when something becomes suddenly unfamiliar. I imagine a philosopher sits at the base of the Eiffel Tower in a striped shirt and beret, writing the word lonesome again and again until it loses meaning, and he doubts that it ever was a word to begin with. Narcissus stares into a pond. Soon, he, is, he no longer recognizes his own reflection, and he is damned by his own nature to obsessing over the question, who is this most lovely face in the water? This thought symbolizes the entirety of his being until it, too, like the word lonesome, loses meaning and he lapses into non-existence altogether. I remember once writing a love letter and not having any of the words I needed. You are the type of snow I could fall right through. I am a songbird's locked jaw, a diminuendo in blue, a chunk of ice that calves off and floats quietly into the ocean. I like books. All right, this one's called Things I Say to Convince Myself I Wasn't About to Cry. She butchered the song. I was about to yawn. She butchered Hallelujah, our favorite song. All I ever learned from love was how to shoot at someone who after you. Yeah. It really sounded kind of like that. Something was in my eye. Yes, both eyes. People in the back were talking. Nobody could hear the song die. Nobody could hear anything die. It must have been sand in the wind—yes, the wind inside. My eyes were dry. I had to sneeze. I hadn't blinked for six months. I hadn't bathed in a year. The whole room was surreal. I wasn't about to cry. It was a metaphor, some sort of displacement. Time was unfolding, and I was sometime else. The tide called its soldiers back. My eyes needed to be ironic. I had a psychic a psychic experience. I knew what was coming. I knew what was not coming. I heard the music die. Nobody heard the music die. Someone outdrew me. Yeah. I didn't realize I was doing another poem by memory, until I looked at my my set list. (laughs) This is called Dashing My Heart Against the Rocks of Puget Sound. In the shadow of skyscrapers, a jungle. You like cats? How about tigers? I asked, on account of my striped sweater. Then the Senate filibustered my teeth. I sat there, writing lines for a post-Armageddon romance, hoping that gamma rays would burn the entire planet down. You just made me blush. No morals. A Venus flytrap fed on my clever intention, my heart, a glowbug caught in the spider's web. When I said, let's strangle Chopin with piano wire, I meant I didn't want you to forget me. You laughed like I hoped you would, in the jungle as I clawed open my scars. I awoke to birdsong that wasn't supposed to be in that city. I ran from room to room, broke my voice to find out if it was real. This poem is called Time Judges Us Without Laws. The night sky and my voice. What stars exploded to give my blood iron? Take it back. I'm not worthy. The brittle September, the brittle September dark pierces into my room an hour earlier. This still isn't forever, she says, letting loose a long dammed up ravine an icicle on her sweater, a music note on my blanket, wilting green wallpaper. If I want to go back to that night when we set the record for world's shortest kiss, it has nothing to do with changing my past. I know, I said to her. I know. One more from edgy, heartfelt poems of true conviction, and then we will go on to another part of our journey here tonight. That journey will involve my notebook. This poem is called The River of Dread He Left Behind. I was not there to hear the whispers, to see the dirty church pews turn tears to mud coward," said the whispers, refusing to dare to even try to understand why he did what he did. Closed the garage door, turned the key, sat there waiting for a point of no return. I do not believe in hell. I believe in friends, lovers, and family. It feels like cheating for them to get better. It feels like being a coward. Ask his girlfriend. Ask his journal. Too many of my friends have turned the ignitions of cars and pills and bottles and beds. Most of them have escaped, letting out cries for help more silent than any other sound they ever make. When I cry for help, it comes out as fuck you. We all have to learn how small we are at some point. This poem is brand new, and I wrote it about a girl on the bus. Actually, that's in the title. Alright. <laughs> this is called, I Should Apologize to the Girl on the Bus for Letting Conversation Die, because what if she is my soulmate? Or, what we talk about when we talk about awkward. <laughs> I blush! I hope she doesn't notice. Am I crossing my legs too tight? Am I being creepy? What does my posture say about me? She is three cubits away. Is it true what they say about pheromones? Because there is a hacksaw in my chest, reaching out to her like the tide as conversation becomes less and less tangible. As the moon drifts away, and if I don't conjure together a bouquet of words to make her fall in love with me, that hacksaw will turn inward. She is checking her phone every ten seconds. Look, I am pretending to text, too. We have so much in common! She is the pyramids of Giza. She is an unsolved mystery with short blonde hair, red lips, a beating heart, and a smartphone. Pry me open. I dare you. Someone must quiet the hacksaw. Someone must dig to the roses. What if the planets have aligned with the bus schedule to bring us together? what if this is the first premonition of a storm flooded stream like i haven't seen for years i am building my conviction one traffic light at a time losing count of my breaths what if she is counting her breaths too I'm not going to lie, I was feeling a little tense leading up to that poem. I was just like, I'm getting dark, I'm getting dark. Now I'm going to talk about a girl on a bus. <laughs> Always an awkward moment. Um I have one more poem for you tonight. Two? Two more? All right. I'm going to think of the other one I'll, I'll do. Give me two seconds. In the prepubescent summer of 1997, my best friend and me watched our first porn movie. Three naked blonde girls in the back of a red truck were touching each other way past our bedtime. We argued over who had a bigger boner protruding like a spiny fish from little boy sweatpants. Welcome to the tell-all. I don't have a sex life as much as I have a looking at women online and not pitying myself, but still sort of wondering what human warmth would feel like life. (laughs) I theorize that abstaining from things can become a hobby and that eventually I'll develop special chastity powers such as invisibility or just feeling invisible and actually being okay with that. Or the power to become emotionally and physically distant from any girl that shows something other than platonic interest in me. Side note. I'm more afraid of sex than I am of burglars. If the spiny fish in me were to have a conversation, it would go like this. Psst! Mark! There's a pretty girl over there! You should go talk to her! Who knows? Maybe you'll end up in her bed without any clothes on. It could happen. To which I would respond, but I hear those things have teeth. Somewhere, in an erotic movie collection, three naked blonde girls are in the back of a red truck inside a dusty video cassette, and I doubt a single one of them would call me a man. I cover up my insecurities by making fun of them. It's the only reason I have ever talked about the naked parts of my body. Side note, my teeth are so fucked up it's cute, so I wear them like a circus sideshow. When I was seven, I started pretending I didn't care how ugly I thought I was. When I was 14, I equated the gap between my two crooked front teeth to a gap in my soul, so I tried not to smile when I didn't have to. When I was 17, I created a checklist of things I had yet to accomplish in this life, beginning with feeling like a man, without having to prove that to anybody. When I was 21, I thought I had finally accepted myself. But no, I had merely fallen for love, and when I hit the ground, so hard I stayed there for seven whole months, I realized how wrong I had been. Self-acceptance is a process, not a place. Side note, all my stories end without morals. You start out with this cute recollection about two little boys and the naked female body, only to end up with silence, my bed sheets, and sweat becoming ice sheets thicker than any creation story about guilt. And nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. One more, Robert? All right. This poem is sand's water. I ran out of water. <laughs> I'm just getting this mouth real dry. <laughs> um, I can go on if if that's okay, Robert. Is that something? That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having so much fun tonight. This poem is called Nihilism. Hell is a knife fight in which both competitors want to die. The fight itself is purgatory. Hell is the moment after when you realize you were always meant for this. This is how it feels to be 21 and singing on streets in Mexico, they say. It is to be 21 anywhere if you torture yourself. Now suppose the knife is in your hand. Now suppose you know the weight of a soul and the shrugging of shoulders, pink leaves dripping from the knife. Masked masked spirits dancing around an invisible flame above. Trees growing in that same spot years later. Every building in Mexico City falling. If he was asked what was wrong, he was to say nothing. 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 This poem's called Just Look Up. As his mother was dying, she told him, See you soon. I'll always be with you, so tell me stories. Just look up. And he had lost his faith a long time ago, so he wished he could have been more sincere as he held her hand and assured her, this- I'll tell you stories, if you're listening. And that night he kept his promise. He looked up and whispered. Once there was a boy who lost his mother, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't believe in a lot of things, but he sure did believe in you. When he came out, her priest came out too, so she thought, it must be a good thing, some sort of sacrament, maybe. She began wielding multicolored ribbons with both hands, told the rest of the family, if you've got a problem with my little boy, Then you've got an even bigger problem with me, and he appreciated that, more than she would ever know. So some nights he would look up and whisper, once there was a boy who lost his mother with rainbows instead of shoes. She helped him walk that rocky path because it was the path he was meant to choose. They say some of us will never see the light, and they say others simply refuse. But if there is one similarity between the man in this story and myself, it's that we both know. There are aspects of our own personalities we simply have no choice in. For him it is the rainbow. For me, it is the blues. I did not pick the color of these eyes, but I do see through them. And I'm not saying these have been painful lives, just that they've been lives worth singing. He was born two things. Catholic and gay, so it makes sense that he lost his faith so easily, even though it was all he wanted to hold on to. Nobody ever said that God hated him, just that God hates people like him. But he has been attending Mass again and plans on wrestling his faith back. Whenever anyone gives him that familiar look of disgust, he wants to shout at them, What God of yours is this who would create someone he cannot love? But instead, he holds it in, looks up, and whispers, Once there was a boy who lost his mother, but she taught him how to pray. He wasn't feeling very holy then, but he's feeling holy again today. I do not know what any of these rainbows feel like. But I do know something about love. I know it is unquestionable. I know it hits us when we are not looking. I know it changes us for the better, no matter what color it is. I know it isn't every color of the sky, even when the sky is crying blues. I know love is something we must always choose. It is the mother's wilting hand, the petal falling from the flower, the boy's tear landing on her cheek, which was the last tear she would ever know, his tear trying to become a miracle, her skin too busy becoming snow. Unlike the man in this story, I have not yet lost my parents, but I am afraid of how I one day will, which is why, some nights, even though I don't believe in a lot of things, I try to look up, just in case. <laughs> All right, I've got one more poem for you guys. Thank you so much for being such a great audience. This has just been the best reading for me. I've had a wonderful time, um, and I'm excited for the rest of the reading. I have those books back there at the booth, Edgy Heartfelt Poems of True Conviction. Um, I just try to describe them. (laughs) Yo... Alright, this poem is called The History of Sidewalks. One. Deer Trails. The First Man. The Discovery of Fire. Two. There are ancient Greek and Incan roads still in use today. Some are made from stone. Others are made of mud. If time can be tested, it is they who test time, not us. Three. Insert quote from famous poet here because the only paths worth walking are those well-traveled by. 4. Forest fires. Footprints burning on trails which will never be used again. Ashes and limestone. A conspicuous usurpation. Children rising as horizontal skyscrapers. 5. The Tower of Babel's secret name. 6. Skyscraping with broken beer bottles. Police. Blood. Bleach seven concrete can also be used to turn men into flowers beneath the sea may we question then who walks upon whom eight Every small town dreams big city like sidewalk drive-by shootings. It's why we cook like meth. Nine or the homeless sleep. Ten. Every sidewalk sprawled syringe was once in an arm. Eleven. There are no sidewalks in Valhalla. Therefore death is what happens when we stop walking. Twelve. When the conquistadors came. Incan Emperor Atahualpa said, Follow our roads and you will find a city paved and built of gold. The Spaniard, Francisco Pizarro, did not understand this parable. Atahualpa was executed. Pizarro never returned to Spain. May we question then who walks upon whom. 13. The first sidewalk in Argentina was christened by naming a newborn boy Fiero, meaning knife fighter, meaning we will only understand honor when we learn to walk away. Fourteen, all that survived Sodom and Gomorrah. Fifteen, a little boy scribbling his initials into wet concrete, caught and executed. Sixteen, the permanently cast shadow of a girl skipping rope on the sidewalk of Hiroshima. Seventeen, when cement dries, it hardens. When this happens to a man, he is called stone-faced. Whatever words are written into him can never be unwritten. He is called a man. His mother weeps for him because he will not do this himself. Thank you all so much. Come talk to me after the show. I love hugs.
0: Mark Anderson, ladies and gentlemen, give him another hand. Zero 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 one zero one zero one zero one zero one zero one zero zero one zero one zero one zero one poetry